0: I don't know if I'm going to get this right. I can tell you what I think pseudoscience means. Pseudoscience means pretend science, but that is not the true full meaning. I think it's more dangerous than that. You can talk about all kinds of crazy crackpot stuff. Pseudoscience is dangerous because it starts with some real science. This is the kernel of truth I'm telling you about. And then expands beyond the real science, such that if you don't happen to be particularly an expert in that field, You see the real science, you go, ooh, and then the person who has then taken it to its extreme, you begin to believe the whole story, where it's only true for a little bit of it and not all of it. So I think that is my definition, anyway, of pseudoscience. It's pretend science, but has a real kernel of truth. And therefore, it's dangerous because many people cannot differentiate when it becomes a lie. When does the truth stop and when does the lie begin?
1: Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a lovely break. I really enjoyed a whole month off, but I am thrilled and excited to be back recording season seven. In today's episode, I thought it would be absolutely perfect to kickstart it looking at January fads surrounding health claims and myths that can be the magic bullet to one's diet. Faddy trends are always in vogue at this time of the year. And I hope today's episode can enlighten you to make some choices which might be more beneficial. To help me uncover this, I speak to geneticist and obesity expert, Giles Yeo, who is a Cambridge University research scientist who studies the genetics of obesity, looking at how our brains control our food intake and play a critical role in modulating appetite behaviour. He came on to end season six, and from that discussion, I thought it would be absolutely perfect to bring him on for this episode. There may be so many times when you're trying a diet and nothing seems to work, or somebody next to you can lose weight and a click of the fingers and you're always struggling. Or maybe you're that person that is sucked into every new diet going, and you just simply want a break or maybe you just want to know what to look out for so you don't get sucked into these new trends. We are going to be dispelling all the myths around pseudoscience and around the diets that do and don't work. Giles, happy new year. Welcome to season seven of Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you?
0: Happy New Year to you too. Thank you for having me. And I am sparkling. sparkling. I'm
1: so pleased. Well, thank you for coming back on so soon because you actually one of the last people to record with me on season six. And we had such an interesting conversation, but an hour never seems to be enough. And I thought, how great to kick off January in season seven with around fad diets and health claims and misinformation. Actually, there's so many goals and intentions people set in January regarding their health. Which can be great because you can kind of like reassess, you know, what your goals might be, your intentions for this year. But sometimes it can be really confusing with a lot of misinformation out there. So this is the perfect way, I think, to start season seven. So thank you for coming back on today.
0: I'm looking forward to this.
1: So I'm going to first of all ask you a question. Do you remember in season six when we finished and I said, what's your New Year's resolution? And you ended up saying, I am going to try and increase the variety of my plant-based foods with a recipe. Ah, okay. We're a few weeks in. So how's that going? Are you creating a new recipe every week?
0: I think I'm 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 doing My wife thinks I should be doing more. I think is the point. Have I done anything new? That's a good question. Actually, I've been trying to have more plant-based foods over over the week, so trying to do more than the two. I don't know if I've hit the new variety yet, though. So no, I have failed so far of trying to come up with a new recipe with a new recipe every single week yet.
1: Well, maybe this can kind of you know urge you on to do something this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now you're gonna embarrass me into doing <laughs> something. This is this is fine. <laughs>
1: well I mean you know it's all just about those like daily reminders just to check in that you know you're keeping.
0: motivation that's what you need
1: Absolutely. that's what you do need that's what you need. well for anyone who didn't listen to the last episode with you and I just a quick brief introduction to who you are you're a geneticist from Cambridge University but you look a lot at weight loss and genetics behind weight loss and obviously ties in with obesity. So could you just give a small brief introduction for anyone who's not listened? And I'd highly recommend you go back to listen to the season six episode of What You Do.
0: Okay, so hello, My, I am Giles, Giles Yo, and I'm, I am a geneticist and I study body weight. And I study body weight of all, actually, so obesity obviously sits on one end of the spectrum. And so I try and understand why some people are small, medium and large in the food environment we live in currently. And we within the field now understand that by studying the genetics of body weight, we are, by its definition, studying the genetics of how our brain controls our feeding behavior. So, and I think that interests everybody. So some people find it more difficult to say no than others. And so they eat more. And so some people are larger than others. That's pretty much what I study.
1: Wow. Okay. And so this is perfect, actually, for my starting question, because we covered... And we're not going to recover this today, but in the last episode, why calories aren't all equal. And we kind of looked more into kind of the composition of the food, but looking at kind of a wider scope, why do some people find it harder to lose weight than others? Because we all have friends that seem to eat whatever they want and not put on much weight. And we have other people that really struggle with weight loss. So, you know, when people come into January setting these intentions and these goals for the year, why do some people struggle more than others to lose weight?
0: So I think the important thing to consider when you are thinking, well, maybe I'm a little bit heavier, maybe I need to lose some weight, is to understand your feeding behavior. Because ultimately, we now know that this is a key driver of why you end up gaining weight or if you look at the other side of the coin, why some people find it more difficult to lose weight. And so what do I mean by this? So, in other words, if you actually take a look at your, your, yourself, I mean, are you someone that responds to stress by eating or not eating, for example? Or do you find it more difficult to get full? So, in other words, do you sit there and, and eat a meal with your partner or parent or, or child or whoever it is you're eating with, and you eat the same meal and the person across from you is stuffed to the gunnels and you're saying, Ooh, I still feel peckish. I can still eat more. Or, you know, are you someone who's thinks you feel hungrier all the time. So all of these are different feeding behaviors. And ultimately, we're fighting biology. Biology is who we are. And if for some people you find it more difficult to say no to food, you're just more driven towards food, or you respond to stress by eating, or you need to eat a bit more to feel full, then that's what's going to happen. And so if you need to lose weight and you don't take into account your A, your biology, and therefore B, the environment in, you, in which you're trying to lose weight in, you know, you're going to be on a hiding to nowhere. So I think you do need to look at your whole, yourself, the type of lifestyle you're living, the kind of food environment you're living in. You need to consider all of it if you want to successfully try and get some weight off.
1: And can you explain, because you speak about this really perfectly in your book, which is called Gene Eating, The Story of Human Appetite, but the set point theory.
0: Oh, okay. So I think set point, which I do use, I have to say, within the book. But now, on reflection, is probably not as accurate. A set range, because a set point assumes that everyone has a has an ideal point, probably an ideal range. So the the set range we we, we use, hypothesizes, I guess, that every living creature. So this is not just human beings has a defendable range of weight. You know, we all know this, right? Where okay, many of us look in a mirror and wish we could lose a few pounds, maybe a few stone, depending on, depending on where you are. But actually, we can get to the situation where we look at ourselves and we're not totally happy with ourselves, but really we're not doing anything to gain or lose weight. So there's this range of weight that we can defend almost effortlessly, okay? But yet, we just lose a few pounds and then we have to think, feel like we have to work really, really hard in order to maintain that 5, 10, 20 pound weight loss. You know, whereas if you were 5 pounds or 10 pounds heavier, suddenly it's no effort to maintain that weight loss whatsoever. So this is that weight range, you know, that we find it more easy to kind of stay within. And it's when you move up or down from that weight range that then people begin to have to work harder in order to, to try and stay within that range.
1: And for you, looking at that as, you know, somebody who studies this every day, is that kind of a signal to say you've lost too much weight or you put on too much weight? Is that a signal that your body is trying to get you to maybe eat more to come into a natural weight range or not?
0: I, I think that's a difficult question. I don't know about too much. Okay, just think about it this way. Your brain hates it when you lose weight no matter how large or skinny you were to begin with, your brain hates it when you lose weight because it considers it reducing your chances of survival. Keeping in mind, we never had enough food while doing our human evolution. And so anytime there was an opportunity to get more food down us, we generally took it, okay? Because, because just in case there was a time we hit when we were not enough food. So whenever your brain senses you've lost weight, it begins to put together strategies in order to try and get you back up to the weight you were before you lost the weight to begin with. It's very depressing. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> but it's true. But as it just happens to be true, it's just an evolutionary fact of, um, fact of life.
1: But sometimes understanding that can help with somebody that is trying to maintain a weight loss diet. Just knowing these facts actually can be quite helpful.
0: Knowing these facts are helpful because then you can put together an appropriate strategy. So while I say that it is difficult to do so, it doesn't mean that some people don't need to lose some weight. Okay, I think very many of us are carrying too much fat so that it's beginning to influence our health. So yes, a lot of us do need to lose some weight. So... When I say that it's difficult, I'm not saying that for people to give up and, and, and don't try. That, that is not my point. My point is you have to understand the biology so you can put together a working strategy in order to, for it to be successful. And a couple of these strategies are going to be, A, you can't do anything super extreme. Because if you do something super extreme, like the water fasting diet, which is the thing where in effect you starve yourself, you know, of course you're going to lose weight. But who's not going to lose weight if you don't eat any food? But the moment you stop that diet, all the weight's going to come back on, okay? So it's never going to be sustainable because at some point you'll die because you're not eating. So you have to consider weight loss not as something which you try only in January, okay? So say you you have an illness, you feel that if you lose a few pounds, that will help your illness. Well, then you have to try and change your lifestyle. And therefore that includes what you're doing in in, in your day-to-day life in order to help you maintain that weight loss. And so anything extreme is, is just never going to, I say never going to work, never going to work for most people.
1: Mm, I think maintain is the big word there, isn't it? It is. Well, it's also about being satisfied with your life. As you said, you know, it might work, but it sounds like you're going to be miserable.
0: (laughs) So the other thing is, why are you losing the weight? And I think that's an important question to ask yourself as well. And I'm not here to judge why anybody wants to lose weight at all. I'm perfectly fine if someone wants to lose weight to look better, right? Say it's your daughter's wedding day or your own wedding day for that matter, and you want to fit in the dress. Fine. That is a perfectly reasonable reason to do so. Just don't decide that if you are a size, you know, 16, okay, you need to try and get down to a size eight, okay? Because you think, well, am I going to achieve that? I'm going to starve myself to death. So I think having realistic goals to reflect your actual goals. So that looking good is one thing. I'd like to think, however, that most people want to lose weight to get healthier, And I think that that's a very, very good reason to try and lose some weight. But if if your goal is to get healthier, then you just need to know how much you need to lose in order to actually see the health benefits. And for many of us, we don't have to lose that much weight to begin to see health benefits of actually losing some weight.
1: Absolutely. And what is the problem with yo yo diets? Because it can be one of these things when we start at the beginning of the year and we do a few weeks and then we fail because we've set ourselves, as you said, these unrealistic goals. And then we feel quite a lot of shame. And then we go back into another type of diet. You know, what happens, one, within our bodies biochemically when we're going on these yo yo diets? Like, how does our body respond and how does our brain respond to that?
0: So I think from a biological perspective, it's always best to try, and I guess it depends on the extreme of the yo-yo dieting you're talking about. There's always going to be a natural yo-yoing as you actually go through, and that's going to be guess going to be fine. I, the, the time when it becomes to be an when it becomes an issue is if you're losing a lot of lot of weight and then suddenly gaining weight like stones at a time. Okay, where you do something extreme and you come back up. And our body is just not designed to be able to take that kind of extremes of weight loss, certainly repeatedly. Okay, and so biologically, it's probably not great for you. Not only physically, not only for your skin, but you know, for what is your what are you putting your liver under? What happened to your kidneys? What happened to your body organs that are actually de- dealing with this? Then there's the mental side of this as well, right? Because if you're going, "Ooh, I'm happy," and then suddenly you're really sad because you've lost because you've gained all the weight back. Then, "Ooh, I'm really happy," and you know, do you suddenly become shamed? It's just that some people are going to be perfectly fine yo-yo dieting and they don't actually mentally are perfectly fine. But for a lot of people, I think it really does bad things to their mental health.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's just really important for us to talk about this today, because it is that time of the year, as you said, it should be not just for January or not just the beginning of the year, you know, a healthy, maintained lifestyle should be throughout the year. However, that's the big crux. That's the big word, isn't it? Mm. There is so much marketing around setting the ideal body in the beginning of January and, you know, how you look physically and all these things that you want to achieve. And there's a lot put on how you look and the diet. And as I was researching, you know, what we were going to talk about this week, there is a very well-known celebrity who has a very well-known wellness site in America (laughs) and <laughs> you already know who I'm talking about, he loves mm. to use the word detox. Now, for me as a practitioner, it's, it's you know, for me that that gives me a lot of rage when I read that in the press and read people writing about detox diets. Can we first of all, maybe just explain where did the word and the term detox come from? Because I think that's actually a really important topic to then go on to why detox diets might not work.
0: So detox is the uh contraction of the word detoxification, Okay. Your body has a natural detox organ, and that organ, well, primarily your liver, but your kidneys as well. It was just getting rid of stuff in, in the blood. And I don't want to call it junk because it just happens to be either the natural output of some chemical reactions in our body, or if we're drinking or eating certain things, that some things we need to actually keep within our body, some things we need to excrete, we need to come out the other side, right? Either for, as we or as as poop, it actually comes out. And so, I guess people look at the output of our bodies and ooh, this is disgusting. Oh, and so this whole concept therefore of detox then comes to be like, well, what happens, you know, if we do too many bad things to ourselves? Do we have to do we then have to do something actively to actually detox the stuff in our body? And I mean, I, I can't remember the exact history of when the term came to be used, but that pretty much is the essence of where it came from, detox.
1: And detox also originates a lot in hospitals. So with alcoholics that have obviously come in and they they need to kind of get rid of the alcohol and ethanol in their systems.
0: That's correct. Now, there's a very big difference. Now, clearly, if, if you're an alcoholic or not even an alcoholic, say you want to try dry January because you've overindulged over the period of time. Say people have done drugs of abuse. Okay. Yes, you do need to detox your body. But what happens is you need to stop taking said items, alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, so that your body can naturally detoxify your blood. Okay. So in other words, the, your organs in, in your body, unless you end up with liver damage, then you can't do the, do, do the detox. So that is perfectly fine. So dry January, for those of you who want to do it, go for it, go nuts. Okay. By all means, reduce your alcohol or, or don't drink alcohol over January. The detox Myth is that you can eat something to detox yourself. Okay. So, detoxing should cost you zero money. In fact, it should cost you less money because what you're doing is you're stopping doing something like, for example, drinking alcohol. What you can't do is go and buy a supplement that helps you detox your body green tea, colon cleanse, whatever things. That is the myth. So, detoxification happens naturally with your organs in your body by stopping doing something. You can't enhance it by adding something.
1: I'm so pleased you said that because on this wellness site, even the word wellness upsets me um, (laughs) (laughs) deeply, the kind of opening word was, you know, we're now going to cut all of these foods out of our diet, calcium, dairy, gluten, sugar, and it's stripping all of these foods away. And then obviously you've got alcohol. So yes, if you're not having alcohol in your diet, that is going to help your liver. But what is the worry around people reading this and actually believing that if i strip all of these foods out of my diet i am going to feel better and i'm going to detox my whole system because so i think it's really important for people to understand that is not what happens
0: where this has actually come from is there are going to be clinical reasons why you may not want to eat some of the items you've just mentioned so dairy for example or gluten there are going to be clinical reasons why some people need to avoid avoid those products and i think it's been conflated where someone says a celiac, which means that they're allergic to gluten, and so therefore they have to stop eating gluten. Gluten, and there are a lot of people who are truly gluten intolerant, and so have to stop that. How about dairy? Okay, I am lactose intolerant. Okay, but I'm, if you can't see me, I am ethnically am Chinese. I can't drink a large volume of dairy products um, as an you know now as an adult without having to run to the loo. So yes, I'm not going to actually eat dairy product either. But People are conflating these conditions that if you have a clinical condition, you remove it, it makes you feel better. That therefore, if we remove it from everybody's diet, that everyone will feel better. This is just not true. You have to have a clinical or biochemical reason for removing some of these foods from your diet. You might say, well, what harm is there if we do it? Well, a few reasons. When you actually remove something from your diet, you will see some kind of effect. Okay. Or at least you think you can see some kind of effect. Say, for example, you lose weight because you take something out of your diet and you think it's because I removed something from the diet rather than something else. And because you remove this from the diet, you end up eating less of something else. And the danger is you begin to make false conclusions from your health reactions to these things you're doing for no clinical reason. And if you begin to make wrong conclusions you may end up just removing most of the things that are good from you from your diet. And that is the critical point.
1: Yeah, and that's where nutritional deficiencies I especially start seeing in clinic. Because if you're starting to remove in whole food groups in quite large amounts and you're not replacing them, then actually this is where nutritional deficiencies can arise and people can be unaware because they're not having an overall balanced diet. And I think that's where we normally talk about an overall balanced diet being one of the most You know, effective ones because you're making sure you're getting an array of variety of different micronutrients, your vitamins, your minerals. But when you start taking them out and you're not actually looking at how you're going to replace them, that's when you can start seeing nutritional deficiencies occur. And I think that's something that's never really spoken about when people drastically start changing their diet. We don't always look at the flip side of things. And I think that's a really critical point.
0: That's it. So if you, for example, suddenly you decide you don't want to eat dairy and you can eat dairy... Okay, but you don't take into the consequence of, yes, okay, famously, for example, if you remove dairy from your diet, if you don't have to, yes, you worry about calcium, you worry about things like like, like iron. But then what's interesting is you may not consider iodine, right? And iod- iodine, pardon me, is a, you know, in certainly in North America, in Australia, here in, in Europe, the vast majority of our iodine actually comes from dairy products. Okay. And and not because cows or goats or sheep are particularly high in iodine per se, but their are feeders. Okay. And so if you remove it, but you didn't know that, then suddenly you're not thinking, you're not thinking of actually replacing the iodine. Just another example of, of just removing a group means that you, and if you're not a nutritionist or dietitian, suddenly you don't know what you've actually taken out of your diet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as we know, low iodine is linked to thyroid problems. So that kind of becomes a whole Escalating problem of things that could occur because of that. So, I think that's really important to highlight for anyone that might be stripping foods out of their diet for a long term to actually make sure they do go and see a dietitian, nutritionist, just like you said. Going on from that, you mentioned one of them, which was gluten. And when I put up the poll about, you know, what are people confused about, a lot of people say gluten. Now, there's been a rise in gluten free diets down many supermarket aisles for probably the last 10 years, really, there's been a big rise in it. Can you first of all explain what is gluten? So people know what it is first.
0: First of all, gluten is not a carb. I think there are a lot of people which, who conflate gluten with carb and it's not. Gluten is actually a protein. And if you listen to the word gluten, it is a protein which actually glues stuff together. It is the protein which gives dough it's elasticity. It's the reason why you can toss the pizza above your head. It's the reason why when you stretch out pasta, you get, you, you know, you, you're able to get long strands. It's the reason why when you make bread, it is able to hold the bubbles in the bread that takes the gas to make bread rise. Gluten is that protein which makes it gluey. And so therefore, that is the structure. So that is gluten.
1: That's what gluten is. Now, there's been a lot of kind of conception that if you cut out gluten, you'll have a lot of weight loss, you'll feel better, you'll have a clearer mind. There's been a lot of links with gluten and increased anxiety. A lot of people wrote on my question box last week, does gluten cause anxiety? Can you kind of uncover a few of these myths or non-myths, I guess, around gluten, around people that are thinking, if I cut out gluten in January, I'm going to be thinner. I'm going to be less anxious. I'm going to be healthier. Because you see a lot of people such as Djokovic, for example, leaving mm-hmm. that type of diet. <laughs> uh, someone who's just come to my mic he's on the news a lot recently. What's kind of your take on that with gluten?
0: Okay. So I think we need to understand that 1% of the human species, roughly, are allergic to gluten. So they have celiac disease. And so what happens is when they have the gluten, without boring people silly, they eat, these people with celiac disease eat gluten. And what happens is you get an autoimmune reaction where the gluten gets stuck pretty much on the surface of your small intestine Okay. And your surface of your small intestine are like these little fronds. They're kind of like a shag pile carpet because what happens is it, ex- it expands the surface area to allow you to actually absorb food. But when you actually, these people with celiac disease eat gluten, it gets stuck there. Your immune system attacks it and in effect destroys your gut lining. It's a terrible thing. Okay. And if you don't diagnose it as a child, or if you get it later on in life, you can actually end up with problems with growth, huge problems with nutritional deficiencies, because you need a gut lining in order to absorb, absorb nutrients. So that's celiac disease. Now, and that's almost easy, and we're not talking about that. Then you have about four to five percent, I think, probably, this is more difficult to measure, of the human species, who are probably genuinely gluten intolerant. So it's not a full allergy, but they get some kind of reaction from it, okay? And it can range from a little bit farty to, like, gastrointestinal distress. It's relatively difficult to actually say whether or not you actually have this true intolerance unless you go see a dietitian or a doctor and you carefully examine, examine yourself. So conflated into this real condition that is actually there in severity is what then happens when people say people end up getting a little bit bloaty when they eat certain types of food people then immediately begin to think, ooh, ooh, maybe it's gluten. And and people think that because this is what a lot of, (sighs) some of the people who write these books, these food guru type human beings who begin to say, well, well, they begin to say, well, if it happens to some people, maybe gluten is not good for us at all. And so people begin to put the blame on gluten when the blame shouldn't be on gluten at all. So now today, I think within this country, within the US, for example, up to 25% of us will actually go out of our way to purchase gluten free. 25% of us, not as a full gluten free life, but actually going out and buying gluten free products. So much so that gluten free has now become monetized. You know, you get foods. Which never had gluten to begin with. Gluten-free rice. Rice does not have gluten. Gluten-free water. I am not. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> gluten-free. Gluten-free shampoo. I mean, so so. I'm not an expert at shampoo. For those of you, I don't have any any hair. <laughs> and so and so. What happens is is you start with a kernel of truth because these myths all have a little bit of truth to them. Then someone misinterprets, or is trying to sell something. And then suddenly you end up with a situation where now we think that gluten is the root of all evil.
1: I mean, I'm really trying not to laugh at the other side of this, just the gluten-free water. I mean, you see it with gluten-free oats as well. It's quite similar that um, some oats, because they're packaged in the same factory, can't be labelled gluten-free. But if you don't have a severe intolerance to them, then then you're fine. But they're double the price. So not only is it more an expensive way to eat, but a lot of the time when you see these free from foods, they're much more processed. So there's this also kind of misconception that if you buy this, you're going to be kind of in quotes, healthier. However, they're more of a processed food. So it's kind of a flip scenario. You'll kind of buy something more processed. And I think that's the huge problem we're seeing of this being monetized, which is gluten.
0: I mean, as I say in the book, a gluten-free donut is still a donut. It's still fried dough, right? Yeah. Just because it doesn't have gluten doesn't mean it is automatically going to be going to be better for you. And there is an odd behavior in which, for whatever reason, people have also begun to conflate gluten-free with grain-free. And so they've taken the extension and people like the, I'll mention their names because I I have, do call them out from the Hemsley sisters, for example, a number of other people saying that, oh, you should go grain-free. You should go grain-free. Going gluten-free is not enough. And so then you end up not eating any grains at all. It's a conflation where the grains are then tied to gluten and they say the whole therefore the whole thing the whole thing is bad for you. And it's actually related in very many ways to the paleo world because the paleo comes from a different direction thinking that agriculture is evil for you. And so there has been a meeting of minds between the gluten-free people, grain-free people, And the paleo people, at least around grains, because people think that this is a food of agriculture, we were not used to it, so therefore it's bad for us, you have to stop eating it. It's not true, by the way, incidentally. But this is where it actually has come from. It's a conflation of all these different types of eatings, it's not even a word, I don't think, you know, where then people begin to take people who don't really know what they're talking about, okay? These are people with real qualifications, as far as I can tell, mostly, and conflating just a lot of correlations or a lot of things that they think are true and and selling it as pseudoscience.
1: You've literally got four questions there from me that I've got written down that I want to ask you. I'm going to try now, segmentize them because you were on a BBC show a couple of years ago, I think it was 2017, about clean eating. And it Mm -hmm. relates very well to this, actually, as you said. And it really upsets me when I hear that, People are afraid of grains because if we look at that, that's fiber and we know that fiber is so nutritious and so fantastic for our health and we're not having enough of it in a population generally. We're actually having under half of what we need and grains and legumes and all of this is actually one of the best ways that we can get the fiber within our diet. So cutting that out already starts a series of conversations in my mind about the problems associated with that. But when you were on this BBC program in 2017, it was called Clean Eating and the Dirty Truth. And I remember this rise in clean eating because this is what got me into nutrition when I was living oh, right. in New York. But yeah, and it was about, te- it was, I think New York's always a little bit ahead of the UK. And this term was coming up and it was like massaging kale and having a green juice. And I, I really got sucked into it. And it's not until I was like, I really want to study the understanding behind this that I realized that actually none of it was true. And that for me actually drove me into this side of the field much more. So when I watched this that you did, I was so pleased that you were actually bringing the science to the public around it. So how did you feel uncovering, you know, the whole side of clean eating? And can you just explain what the term clean eating means for anyone who's listening and maybe doesn't relate to that?
0: So the term clean eating is not just one type of diet, it's a group of actually diets. And they share a couple of key characteristics, but otherwise they're actually quite different. And one of the key characteristics is they do, that they all have a kernel of truth, hmm. but then are spread via pseudoscience. So people then take it and expand it beyond what, what the truth was to begin with. And they all have an underlying message that food is medicine. Now, hang on, before everyone starts chucking their shoes at me, clearly the vast majority of non-communicable illnesses we have today are diet related. So there is an issue with our diet that we need to fix. And clearly, if you improve your diet, you can improve your health. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is replacing medicine with food you're giving up their chemo and saying, I'm going to use turmeric or ginger or something like that. Now, turmeric and ginger are healthy for you and are probably a really healthy part of this supporting a healthy diet.
1: Unless you have low blood pressure. If you have turmeric and have low blood pressure, it's not good for you. It makes your blood pressure drop.
0: <laughs> but you have to understand that. You have yeah. to actually understand understand that the biology underlying that. And so this is what all of the clean eatings do. And a lot of this Clean eating diet is based on the removal of entire classes of food or groups of food for no clinical reason. So gluten-free is an example. Plant-based. Now, plant-based, I think, has now evolved, interestingly, since 2017, okay, It was initially meant to... Well, no, we know what plant-based is. Plant-based is a slightly more restrictive version of veganism where you're eating whole foods instead. And it's actually a very healthy way to live as long as you do it correctly. The problem with plant-based was it assumed that there was no safe dose of animal protein, okay? So in other words, just a little bit of egg white, just a little bit of dairy would begin killing you. We eat too much meat, but there is a safe dose of animal protein. And the alkali diet... That's another clean eating grouping of diets.
1: That is absolutely terrifying, the alkaline diet. I remember it was Natasha Corrett who bought it to the UK, obviously from the doctor that was studying in the US, who was a fake doctor in the end. But, I mean, it is always one of my favourite ones to talk about, just because how absurd it is. But can you give people kind of a, an analogy of what the alkaline diet is and actually why it doesn't work, but the theory behind it?
0: first of all, what is acid and what is alkali? So for those of you who know who don't know what acid and alkali is, it just has to do with the amount of ions of hydrogen that you actually have in your body. But leaving that aside, there is a scale in which people determine the alkalinity or acidity of a specific item. And it's a scale that goes from zero to 14. Seven is neutral and below seven is acidic above seven is alkali. Okay. So this is just as a chemistry is a way of actually trying to determine alkalinity or acidity uh, using, using chemistry. So our blood pH, which is what the, is used, that scale is called the pH scale. Our blood pH is slightly alkali. It's at 7.4. Okay. And that is healthy alkali blood, your healthy blood. And it's very, very tightly regulated. So that's the kernel of truth. We do have an alkali, we are alkali creatures, largely speaking. So, then people, particularly this chap named Robert Young, I'll mention him, okay, doctor Robert Young, who's not really a doctor at all, was the one who actually came up with this diet where, well, if we have alkali blood, we need to eat alkali foods in order to maintain the alkalinity of our blood. Okay, so this is the basis of it, which. On, at face value sounds, well, maybe that's true, right? If we have alkali blood, maybe we need to eat alkali food, except for two problems. The first is it ignores the presence of the stomach. So when we eat, it's relatively neutral until it gets to the stomach. Now, our stomach is the most acidic part of our body, a pH 1.5. It's, it's like battery acid, okay? And then, so everything that we eat, whatever their beginning pH ends up at pH 1.5 because it hits the stomach. Then, as it passes through the stomach and into the small intestine, it is neutralized. So, everything goes from pH 1.5 back to pH 7. And so, therefore, whatever you eat will get acidified and re-neutralized again. Nothing you eat will change the pH of your blood. That's the first problem. The second problem is when you, by all means, go and look at it on the internet, says what are alkali foods and what are acidic foods. And Robert Young was the one that came up with this. And if you actually look at the tables of what is considered alkali and acidic, I'll just give you one example. Robert Young considered lemons to be alkali. Now let's think about this for a second. Lemon, Lemons and oranges and limes are citrus fruits. So they contain citric acid. Okay, <laughs> That's the first thing. The secondly, they are famously rich in vitamin C. The chemical name for vitamin C is ascorbic, acid. You've taken one of the more acidic foods that you can eat and called it alkali. So I think by chance, they got some of the classification correct. (laughs) Flipping a coin 50-50, you can, you know, but generally speaking, I don't know how they decided what was acidic and what was alkali. So it's random. The foods which they call acidic and alkali are in effect random, but why do people do it people do it because it works for them for weight loss and a reason why it works is because dairy products and meat are considered acidic leaving aside the fact that they're full of blood and so therefore should be alkali but let's leave that alone so as a result actually an alkali diet is really quite close to a plant-based diet and so it's like being it's like going on a plant-based diet it's like doing veganuary if you're if you're alkali but people don't consider it like that and so that's why People stick to it, thinking it works. But yeah, well, you may just be vegan.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was in a diet, though, that was... You're saying, when you're talking about it, I'm laughing just from the absurdity of of how it was created. But, you know, actually, this was one of the diets that was taken to extremes. You know, people were dying from it. People stopped cancer treatment to go and think it could cure cancer. And that didn't work.
0: But for really, really dangerous reasons. Not Not because they were eating alkali diet not at all, which that wouldn't have been dangerous. Okay. What is stupid is ridiculous, biologically implausible, but not dangerous. What was dangerous was people begin to think, Ooh, wait a minute. Well, what happens if we can inject ourselves with alkali or acid? What happens if we can have enemas? You you know, like literally Mm -hmm. they would stick alkali stuff into random parts of their body in order to try and actually heal themselves. And In this program, which I did, this clean eating program, I actually went to interview Robert Young, um, and I was allowed to by the San Diego district attorney because he already had been convicted, okay, of practicing medicine without a license. And he had this clinic, which he could no longer run, in which he got terminally ill patients, okay, and claimed that he was going to be able to cure them by injecting them with sodium bicarbonate. Okay, so this is the stuff that you use for baking, okay? And he would make a sodium bicarb solution and actually using an IV into the blood of terminally ill patients. I mean, it was criminal. And so, and they paid, it wasn't like it cost $2.99. The people were paying tens of thousands of pounds or dollars, depending on where they came from, for these treatments in inverted commas. So this guy was a true horrific criminal because he was taking people in the last parts of their days, stealing their money, taking them away from their families to try and alkalize their blood to cure their cancer. It took things to the complete extreme.
1: And this just really shows, you know, how things can be taken to an extreme. And I think that is the scary part of this. Sometimes we we look at nutrition and think, well, how can it really be actually that detrimental and when you break it down and you talk about what we're talking today hopefully people can see in a more rounded view that it can actually be quite detrimental to our health and it can have the opposite effects in some cases and not all obviously linking to that is another one which is blood type diet Mm. now i feel like this one constantly keeps arising it doesn't seem to go away this one every year somebody i know is going on the blood type diet
0: So now, as far as I know, and I'm not an expert at this, but the blood type diet is where, you know, we have blood types with A, B, you know, O, depending on, you know, so we're concerned about it when we're trying to do a transplant or trying to do a blood transfusion. And it is, in effect, a shorthand for the immune type of our blood. And so all of us are going to have different types of immune cells that decorate the surface of our bodies. And this means that we can only take certain types of blood of blood transfusion, okay? So that's what our blood type is. But then someone came up with the fact that, well, depending on your blood type, we have to eat very, very specific types of foods, okay, because of your diet. And this has come from the fact that we should eat to our immune system. We should have non-inflammatory foods or inflammatory foods. And the problem is it's not true. So your blood type does reflect a characteristic of your immune system but nothing you're going to eat, your blood type will not influence what you will have to eat or what you won't have to eat. There's, there's absolutely no truth to it. There's, in fact, there's no truth to having an inflammatory or non-inflammatory diet either. Now, there are situations in which if you eat unhealthily, you can actually have a rise in inflammatory markers in your blood because you're gaining weight, because your liver is getting too fatty, and that will result in a rise in inflammatory markers. But there is no food which you eat that will inflame you. So, therefore, the whole blood type diet sounds very sciencey. It does sound very sciencey. People go, oh, yes, this is, but it actually has no basis in truth.
1: Yeah. And that links in really well, actually, with boosting your immunity. It's probably one of, the term. I, I hear a lot in January. But I mean, if you boost your immunity, it's really not a good thing because you're going into an autoimmune response. But you hear a lot of things within the press and in articles that say, have this, it will help boost your immune system. But can we boost our immune system through food?
0: So you can boost whatever that means. <laughs> you can have a healthy immune system By being healthy. This, once again, this is where the kernel of truth is. So
1: it's the support, isn't it? It's supporting. It's to
0: support your immune system. And the, the way to have a healthy immune system is to have a healthy diet. Because if you have a healthy diet, you are healthier. You will have a healthy immune system. But having a healthy diet does not mean to take a pill. It does not mean to have a cleanse. It does not mean to eat a supplement in order to boost your immune system. There are no supplements which will boost your immune system. You can improve your whole diet. Okay. And improve your health. And that will improve your immune system. So once again, a kernel of truth. But fixing and improving our diets can improve our health and therefore our immunity. But you cannot boost your immune system using supplements, which is what? In effect, immune booster, you know, immune boost juice, you know, whatever you can buy and you can go to these places. So it's, none of that is true.
1: Mm. It's the same thing you mentioned earlier, actually, and I, and I didn't pick up on it because there were so many things I wanted to get through, but you mentioned about green tea and that's definitely one of the big supplements linked to kind of boosting your liver or detoxing your liver. And there was a story in the last couple of years, actually, where a man died from an overdose of green tea supplements. Can you talk about kind of the kernel of truth where that comes from, but actually why green tea supplements do not detox your liver?
0: Mm. So once again, I'll say it again, I'm Chinese ethnically, so I drink a lot of green tea. Okay. And my grandmother used to say that, and this is an old wives' tale, bless my grandmother, that if after a fatty meal, we should drink green tea because it helps melt the fat. This is not true, okay? (laughs) But tea, like most teas, have a lot of antioxidants in them, and that is true. Okay, and so therefore, actually, a cup of tea, green or black, or you know, gunpowder or darjeeling, whatever it is, is probably good for you because you know it has a natural levels of, of antioxidants. Green tea in particular is naturally lower in caffeine compared to black tea. So some people do do like that. And it's actually quite a refreshing drink. So as a result of that, because we're human beings, we decide that, well, you go from the fact that, well, I feel good, it makes you wee, you know, it's good for you. Maybe we can actually purify the active ingredients in green tea, okay, and use it as a supplement in order to help ourselves. And so I have actually done another program called Vitamin Pills, you know, miracle or myth. I went to interview a guy who ended up having these green tea supplements and had a liver transplant. It's rare, just a green tea supplement is not necessarily going to get you in trouble with your liver. But the thought that green tea is going to help your liver detox is a funny thing. Because The green tea extract is one of the things that your liver removes from the blood. This is the thing. In some rare people, it becomes a toxin for them. So actually, taking green tea supplements, which is a concentrated version of tea, more doesn't mean better. Okay, so green tea, we drink it, you know, it's got a small amount of antioxidants in it, and you get this active ingredient in it. And really, we don't can't drink that much green tea. But the moment you concentrate it into a pill, it's the equivalent of drinking like two gallons of green tea. Then you're going to get some people who are not able to actually withstand that or your body is not able to clear it. And this is why people have died or lost their livers from green tea supplements. Just because it's good for you in a food doesn't mean that if you concentrate it, it's going to be better for you. The dose makes the poison
1: it's so true because it can be so hard sometimes to think that this magic pill is going to be going you know, to help me with weight loss it's going to improve my cognition it's going to help me in all these areas with my lifestyle but actually it's just another way of you know trying to make that quick fix which we know and it's really boring to say isn't it but it doesn't work
0: it speaks to the human nature is there a shortcut wait a minute, if this food is good for you, blueberries, then we, we should be able to concentrate it and make it even better for you. And therefore, you know, we can then eat it, we can pop a pill. I think some people out there, if you can pop a pill to make yourself healthier, people will do that. And that's what the whole vitamins industry is, is selling themselves on. And so it is just an interesting reflection, I think, on human behavior. The best way to be healthy is still to have a healthy overall diet, is to eat a balanced meal, more fiber, and actually have a healthy overall diet rather than taking supplements.
1: And it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about the real food versus a pill or a supplement. If you're looking at a blueberry, yes, you might have that ingredient that is making X, Y, and Z happen. However, you've still got the fiber around the blueberry that is also acting in synergy to these health benefits. And so when we just isolate one small thing, we're not taking into context all the other things that we're working. And when I say in synergy, it means that they all work together to help create, you know, the health aspects that you might be seeing.
0: That's right. That's right. Because you're right. The blueberry has antioxidants and is considered in inverted commas, a superfood. But if you take out the extract, you don't have the fiber, you don't have the minerals, you don't have the vitamin C, depending on what's in the extract. So it is almost always better to eat the food in which that supplement has actually come from. Now, now, there is going to be a room for supplements. Just want to point this out. Say you want to get pregnant, folic acid, maybe some pregnant women do need to take iodine. I'm a tropical boy living in a northern rock. In wintertime, I probably am vitamin D deficient slightly, for example. So once again, there is going to be a time and a place for a clinically relevant supplement for you to have. But you imagining something or someone who is not medically qualified or who is a nutritionist or dietitian, you know, is not going to be able to give you the accurate information about what you may or may not need to supplement.
1: Yeah, I think that that is really important. And while we're on that topic of supplements, for anyone who is looking at going more plant-based, what would you recommend that they might need to be more aware of? Because I think that's something that's probably going to be one of the most, I guess, taken on new initiatives of January is is plant-based eating.
0: Yes, it is. So just to be crystal clear, okay, there is a huge difference, obviously, between plant-based or veganism and vegetarianism. Now, vegetarianism, because of the presence of dairy and eggs, you can easily do it. You can do it if you're poor. It doesn't cost you a lot of money because it's nutritionally complete. Now, veganism or going plant-based is more tricky. And it's more tricky because there are some types of foods which are more enriched or sometimes exclusively only found in in animal-based foods. So you do need to watch your iron levels. Once again, it's not impossible to do. You just need to do this. You need to watch things like your calcium levels, because these are things which we would normally have not thought about it at all and got it from meat or got it from dairy products, okay? And and also protein, okay? You're going to, once again, it is completely possible, obviously, to get your full spectrum of protein from plant-based products. But you want to make sure you're eating, and a rich source of this is going to be beans, for example, and pulses, but you want to be make sure you're actually eating a wide variety. Okay, don't just focus on red beans or something like that. Eat a colorful collection of beans, eating a rainbow, okay? It's true for beans as well as for vegetables. will get you the full spectrum of protein. And crucially, you need to think about, I think I mentioned iodine. And unless you eat a lot of seaweed, and even so, the iodine is not that bioavailable in seaweed, I think if you are being plant-based or vegan, it's probably wise to supplement iodine and it's wise to supplement vitamin B12, which tends to be found in animal-based products or in yeast. Now, not everybody, however, likes Marmite and not everybody likes yeast extract which is going to be rich in B12. So it's often advised.
1: It's good in casseroles and like stews and things like that.
0: Very umami. If, you, if yeah. you like the flavor, fantastic. Sort of a, a plant-based version of Parmesan, I always, I always co- call it. It's like that. And that's fine. But it's probably safer to supplement your vitamin B12 as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also, I just want to add in, because this is my area of research, where I love is omega-3s.
0: Ah, yes.
1: It's always one of my kind of, I talk about it all the time, your EPA and DHA, your longer chain omega-3s, which we get from fatty fish. So that's another one I say would definitely look out for as well, because if you're not having fish, then it can be very hard to gain it unless you're going to be eating algae, which...
0: Once again, not a lot of us do.
1: Not a lot of us do. Yeah. (laughs) So you've mentioned a word there a few times, pseudoscience, which I think a few people might not be that familiar with. Can you explain what pseudoscience means?
0: I don't know if I'm going to get this right. I can tell you what I think pseudoscience means. Pseudoscience means pretend science, but that is not the true full meaning. I think it's more dangerous than that. You can talk about all kinds of crazy crackpot stuff. Pseudoscience is dangerous because it starts with some real science. This is the kernel of truth I'm telling you about. And Mm -hmm. then expands beyond the real science, such that if you don't happen to be particularly an expert in that field, Mm. You see the real science, you go, ooh. And then the person who has then taken it to its extreme, you begin to believe the whole story where Mm. it's only true for a little bit of it and not all of it. So I think that is my definition anyway of pseudoscience. It's pretend science, but has a real kernel of truth. And therefore it's dangerous because many people cannot differentiate when it becomes a lie. When does the truth stop and when does the lie begin?
1: You are on point. I actually just Googled it because I was thinking I don't actually know the specific term. I mean, my understanding is exactly the same as yours. But pseudoscience consists of statements, beliefs, or practices that claim to be both scientific and factual, but are incompatible with the scientific method. So it's what you said. And I think that's really important. So how? So lastly, leaving this, obviously, people being a bit more aware of some diets that might not work, some diets that might be beneficial, some ones that might be detrimental. But how can people navigate this pseudoscience? Because I think that's what's really important for when people listen to this podcast, when they go away, and there's something that we might not have talked about, how can they be aware if this is pseudoscience?
0: It's not easy. This is the problem, okay? Because what happens is you get a lot of people who pretend to be experts and actually and actually talk about it. I think there are probably some golden rules. I think you need to look at a multitude of sources. So don't just rely on one source <laughs> in order to do it. And look at the qualifications of the person that's actually in front of you. A lot of the pseudoscientific stuff that comes out tends to be slightly what is the word I'm, I'm looking for? Conspiracy theory-based, you know, saying that, oh, the government is out to get you. You know, it's big pharma in government's pockets. You know, the NHS, you know, they're, they're telling you things which is not true. The British Dietetic Association don't know what they're talking about. I'm not saying that if, that they are right all the time. These websites that you go to make this big conspiratorial comments immediately. I would use that as a red flag and begin to look at other sources of evidence and look at the qualifications. I think that's probably the best way To do it because not all of us are experts, right? And you might look at this person. Well, this person says he says he's a doctor. You know, is he a doctor of what? What is his? um, Is he published? And I think that's probably the way to do it. It's safest. You may still make mistakes by all means, and that's going to happen. But you'll make less mistakes if you triangulate your sources. If you're being go well, do multiple sources say roughly the same thing? And actually, if someone is trying to sell you something that appears magical or that appears to be too good to be true, I think the chances are it's probably too good to be true.
1: I think that's always my thing. If something's too good to be true or too quick, then actually it's probably not going to be the most beneficial and it's not going to have that much truth behind it. Even though it can be the easiest route in our minds because our brain's lazy, it wants to do that quite quickly. But, you know, in the long term, and you have to think about this, even though our brain is lazy and wants to have the quickest solution, that could make you quite miserable, that approach to weight loss or that approach to a healthy lifestyle. So I think that's really important to consider. And again, as you said, the regulatory bodies, you know, who is this person who's writing? Who are they affiliated to? What governing body are they with? All of these things I think are really important just to have a look at before you kind of take on and go and buy that product. Charles, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, I could. There's many more I could go through, but I would say we've run up a time. We're now an, an hour. And anyone who wants to know more, I would definitely recommend your book, Gene Eating," and also the two programs. You mentioned the BBC one, but what was the other one that you mentioned that you've done in the last few years?
0: I did "Clean Eating: The Dirty Truth," and I also did "Vitamin Pills: Miracle or Myth." It's bo- both by BBC Horizon.
1: Okay, so you can definitely get that on BBC iPlayer. So I'd say go and have a look at them. And also, where can people find you? Because I know that you're quite outspoken on Instagram and Twitter. So you're always a good page to go and follow.
0: Nothing fancy, just Giles Yo, all small case, all linked together. It's my handle on Twitter and my handle on Instagram.
1: Amazing. Giles, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well Season 7. It's been such a pleasure to have you back and for just informing us all with this really important information so people can make their own informed choices. So thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And have a very good start to your 2020. I'm going to be keeping up, by the way, to see how many plant-based recipes you're posting.
0: I will. You see, now I'm motivated. I'm now motivated. I'm going to try my best.
1: Good. And then I'll try and recreate them. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. It is so exciting to be back and make sure you do subscribe so you know when all the new episodes are coming out. We've got a range of really exciting new guests and experts to bring you in this series.